Welcome back to Crude Conversations. It's been about three weeks since the last episode, and in that time, the first three episodes of Crude's new podcast, Lost Anchorage, premiered. In that podcast, I sit down with professionals, law enforcement, and those affected by crime in order to better understand the mechanisms and causation of crime in Anchorage, Alaska. The first three episodes are available on the Crude Conversations iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcast channels. In the near future, the episodes will be available on their own channel. Just search Lost Anchorage. That's L-O-S-T space A-N-C-H-O-R-A-G-E on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you're a Crude Magazine Patreon subscriber, every episode of Crude Conversations and Lost Anchorage are available there. Okay, on to the show. In this episode, I sit down with Andy Ellsberg, an emergency room doctor at Providence Hospital here in Anchorage. We get into how he went from being a ski bum to an ER doc, the idea of wilderness medicine, and the pervasiveness of alcohol and opiate addiction in Anchorage. Okay, time to shout out the crude company men. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, and Sharon Liska. Thank you all for your support. This podcast would not be possible without you. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by reviewing it on iTunes and subscribing to the Crude Magazine Patreon at patreon.com slash crude magazine. All right, back to Andy Ellsberg. You know, one thing that stood out to me about this conversation was when Andy said that Alaska is a violent state. What he means by that is things like bear maulings and ATV accidents exist alongside things like inner city gun violence and drug overdoses. And given that, the staff at the Providence ER truly encounters every kind of emergency because an urban wilderness split doesn't really exist in Alaska. We get into a lot more than that, including the short but aggressive spice epidemic that hit Anchorage a few years back, and what a gunshot actually does to a human body. So let's just get into this conversation. Here's Andy Ellsberg. Mike is hot. Mike's hot. Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. All right. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thanks. So, how are you? I'm pretty good. I'm waking up, but yeah, I'm good. And you just had a night shift, didn't you? Our evening shift. So, yeah, our days are kind of split into a day shift that's like six to two eight to four nine to five thirty um and then evenings which run till like we stop seeing patients at midnight or so but you don't really leave till two so coffee is your friend uh, coffee's been my friend for a long time yeah <laughs> <laughs> i have a drug problem with coffee and i'm totally okay with that is there a difference between uh evening or night shift people and day shift people you know it, Night shift people are, are a thing in and of themselves, right? Like, at least in my world, you, you can't really get away with doing days without evenings. Um, I'm actually super fortunate that I'm in a group that allows us to not do nights. Um, we have a, a differential where if you don't want to do nights, 
you put into a pot and that goes to the people that do nights. I mean, it recognizes that nights is hard on most people and hard on families and uh, hard on cycles in your life. So, uh, so we kind of recognize that as a group and um, it works out well. And that, that shift differential kind of floats as the, it's a, it's a good supply and demand model. It's capitalism at its best. <laughs> and that seems to be kind of out of the norm, right? As far as ER docs that don't have to work overnight. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, you know, I, I haven't gone back to my friends from residency and said, do you guys still do nights? Um, now that we're out, when you start out, you're always definitely going to be stuck with a fair bit. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we're pretty lucky. Like I, I have a good job, definitely. And I have a good group I work with and I work in a pretty amazing place. Um, but Anchorage Medical Community is a pretty special community in and of itself. So, in what way? Um, so in the same way that Alaska is lucky in terms of the resources that get put our direction in a lot of directions, uh, that we reap that benefit, you know, in terms of the cost of living increases for people that work for the federal government, in terms of the amount of federal government support that we get up here, because we're far away and we're a new state. Um, and hopefully that continues. But uh, the medical community is the same. You know, it's, it, I don't really know that much about the origins of it, but I assume it had to be fairly subsidized for a small population. And uh, we have cost of living recognition in terms of the payment structure um, coming from the federal government towards hospitals and providers and, and all that here. And it's not overblown, you know, that's something that's to some degree necessary. But we, we, the benefit that we've reaped is that, you know, we have ERs, I'm in emergency medicine, so my focus is there, but the resources we have for the population we have is pretty amazing. Where I went to residency, an average wait time in the ER was eight hours. I would see people that had been there 24. And where was this residency? And that was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is a very low resource state. It's an extremely poor state and an amazing place to train for that that reason. But, um, you know, people here get super twitchy when they have to wait two hours for an ER visit or even an hour. And and that's fine. I mean, you know, they perceive why they're there as an emergency. But the fact that we have the wait times that we have and that we have the resources that we can offer is amazing. And... um, and we as uh, the people of this community definitely take advantage, advantage not in a bad way, they, but unknowingly, if they haven't lived somewhere else where wait times are what they are in a lot of cities, um, six, eight, ten hours, uh, you know, we, we're able to offer medical care quickly to people in need. And that's, that's an amazing thing. And that's only because we have the resources we have here. And by advantage, do you mean advantage in a good way? Do you mean that, say, somebody will have a, you know, they'll be hurt or they'll have a sickness. And then instead of being like, oh, I, I don't want to deal with the ER and the wait time like here, they'll go. You know, I don't know if our visit percentage is higher than other places, but I just mean in terms of because. Uh, I mean, definitely long wait times have a filter effect, I'm sure. Um but our acuity is high. We're not like the level of illness of the people we see is 
I don't believe, lower than in other places. So I think people still use the ER pretty appropriately. I mean, there are the people that don't, and there are the people that do. And I don't think that we're that different if you look at the stats. I haven't drilled down into that. But my sense is when we look at the number, the percentage of people that get admitted to the hospital because they're sick enough to be admitted, because we, we don't have a surplus of beds here. We're not admitting people for uh, less reason than they would be admitted in other places. Um, we do have... And we don't have a surplus of places for people to go once they leave the hospital. That's actually a huge problem here. We have, for our size of population, our resources for after the hospital in terms of rehab and assisted living and skilled nursing is very low. So we have a really hard time getting people out of the hospital that were sick. Um, but in terms of who visits and who stays in the hospital, um, I think our percentages are where they should be. Um, and But fortunately, that door to get there, you get to see someone and, ha and, and connect with the medical system faster than you would in most places. Um, and, and I don't, uh, I mean, I think that's, you know, thinking I haven't really thought about it. Like, do we see people who shouldn't be there because it's easier to get seen? Um, but I think people have, a, in general, have a good sense of why they should, when they're having an emergency or when they think they are and when they don't. You know, there are obviously the people that misuse the system, but that's true everywhere. I think that depending on where you live, everyone has a different relationship with the ER. And having grown up here, I know that myself included and everyone around me has always been like, if something bad happens, uh, an accident, uh, whatever, I need to go to the ER. It's never, it's never like, oh, maybe I shouldn't go to the ER. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I think if you have like a real accident, you should go to the ER, right? Because we're the ones who are trained in how to deal with that. I mean, that's what we do, and and we do it at all levels. We do it from, you know, not a serious accident to a serious accident. So I did some reading about you online. Obviously, I did some research. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't gotten to you yet. I listened to the podcast with your uncle. Oh, you did? And okay, I, great. I know you're, obviously, I know your brother because he works with me, but but he hadn't told me about your family. Like, I sort of had gotten little hints that you guys were from a pretty cool family, but I had never really sat down and talked to Colt. And, uh, and I'd never put your last name together, even though I knew, like, Liska and Borderline in the past, but it's funny. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that podcast. It's a good one with uh, with my uncle Jay, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, he's a character. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I did some reading about you, and you dropped out of college so you could become a ski bum. Uh, well, yeah. How did you yeah. go from that to emergency medicine? I mean, when I went to college at first, I think I was too young. I actually, um, so in high school, um, I was definitely a kid that was acting out a bit, not in big bad ways, but I was. I grew up, my mom was a journalist. I think I told you this before. Um, and she taught me to question things. And I questioned things. And as a teenager, fairly aggressively out loud. Um, <laughs> like, and so I ran for president of my high school as an anarchist, promising to abolish the high school um, student government. How'd you do? Uh, well, they never released the numbers, I believe. <laughs> I believe that it was rigged. It was fixed against me. It's the one thing I have in common with Trump. Yeah, recount. Was, yeah, recount. I needed a recount. But they never released the numbers. Um, anyway, I'm sure that the girl that won who went to Yale, who was a really nice girl, she was so sweet. She like was crying when she heard that I thought that maybe it was rigged. <laughs> <I think laughs> what grade was this? This was 10th grade. No, 11th grade. 
She might uh, not be cut out for politics <laughs> if she's crying already. Well, you know, you got to learn those lessons and move on. But anyway, <laughs> so I ran for, yeah. So anyway, I was that kind of a kid, like in your face, questioning things. Um, I went to a college fair and there's a college on the East Coast called Hampshire College, which was super liberal. Um, and you created your own program. And that all sounded really good in my head, you know, as a kid, like, oh, I can create my own program without recognizing that within myself, there's no way I would create my own program and actually get it done. Like I actually need structure. It's like kind of going to the <laughs> ER and trying to fix yourself. Right. Exactly. Right. Like, and that's why I work in the ER. Like I'm good about going to work when they tell me to, and I do my work and I can focus really hard. And then when I leave, I need to go do something else. Um, and so I went to a, a extremely liberal, liberal arts college and uh, I learned a lot, but I didn't get a whole lot done when it came to what I was supposed to get done. And they eventually told me if I don't get X, Y, and Z done, I, I needed to not come back. And my parents were pretty amazing. Um, my mom looked at me as I was, you know, like high school kid explaining or whatever, college kid explaining why they didn't want me back. Uh, I'm sure there were tears involved because I was pretty embarrassed. And she, she said, you like to ski. Why don't you go up to Vermont and go ski? And I did. I packed my stuff and drove up to Vermont and uh, figured it out. Went to Stowe, found a job. My car didn't start my first or second day of work. I was staying in some hostel and hitchhiking back. And this guy picks me up, this hippie chef who was totally hilarious. And he needed a roommate and it all worked out. Dang, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. So that I uh, I didn't really drop out. I got asked not to come back. <laughs> <laughs> you got and I needed out. to grow up before I could do that. And eventually I did. And so you went from that to going to school, uh, going to college where? So, I mean, that was kind of a long journey. You know, I took some classes here and there. Um, but uh, from ski bumming, I got involved in outdoor education. Um I did a National Outdoor Leadership School course, and uh, I hate to say Knowles changed my life, but Knowles changed my life. Like I'd grown up doing a fair bit of outdoor stuff, but never at that level and never at that intensity and never long trips. I'd grown up sailing and we'd done longer sailing trips and they'd been incredibly special to me, but not huge long ones, but like five, six days. And uh, that meshed with that, like that was the place where I liked to be, was out and doing things. Um, and, and they liked me too. So I got asked back to be, do an instructor's course and be an instructor. And that's, that's where I kind of found my passion was in outdoor, both doing outdoor stuff and being an outdoor educator. And that kind of evolved. And that's where I, that was where I had, I guess, a career, um, between that and other outdoor work. And I eventually ended up in Fairbanks and went the well, actually, at first, when I went back to school, seriously, I had tried to go back to school in Bozeman, but they wouldn't let me be in-state because I worked in Wyoming, and I paid my taxes in Montana, but they didn't give me in-state tuition, so I didn't go back to school there. Came up to Alaska and stayed, and I did a year at Matsu College, and um, that's, and then moved up to Fairbanks and, and really went back to school at UAF, which is a fantastic place for sciences. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah. They have a great school up there. And so did you practice emergency medicine up in Fairbanks at all? I didn't. You know, I went to UAF, finished UAF. Um, at that point, I was running and racing dogs. Uh, I'd met my wife and we were totally focused on running dogs and working seasonally to support that. Um, I'd moved from 
guiding and outdoor education at that point into working field geology work with her because she was a geologist and we could just focus and hammer out four months of work and then fund our running dogs. And then uh, I went back to med school from that. I'd done a degree in chemistry and biochemistry and so all my prereqs were done and did MCATs and that went well. So I applied for Whammy and that's what actually brought me down to Anchorage. Kind of what I'm hearing is I'm, I'm understanding a little bit of my next question. <laughs> um, the meshing of this outdoor life with, with medicine. And in an article I read in the Anchorage Daily News, uh, you mentioned this idea of wilderness medicine. Did you come up with that term or, or is it just an actual term? No, wilderness medicine's a thing. Um, so it's basically considered medicine anything more than two hours from the road. You know, and that's not like a hard boundary. But uh, so when you're guiding or you're teaching outdoor education, and really at any level, you know, you're out away from the road and you're um, you're expected to at some level be able to do first aid. Um, so I was a initially a wilderness EMT. And then when you're not working on an ambulance, it's hard to maintain EMT certification. So then I was a wilderness first responder. And that's the level that's basically the standard in the industry and in, in the U.S. So. Yeah, I mean, that's how I got interested in medicine was I I always liked that. I mean, I didn't like people getting hurt on our trips, but when I when we were dealing with medicine in the backcountry, I enjoyed it. And I felt like I was pretty good at it. I had had a few fairly intense scenarios, you know, on trips and also just running into stuff on the road system where I felt comfortable doing it. And uh, that's what made me realize that I, I could do that. And the other thing about guiding is that you, I mean, that was part of what got me out of guiding. I didn't like only working with one segment of the population. I mean, they're wonderful, motivated people, but it's, um, you know, you're, you're working with people that can afford it all the time. And now my work is with everybody. And I like that cross cut of the population. I like being interacting with everybody um, and feeling like my work is for anybody and everybody. And, uh, but I worked with a lot of doctors and I hadn't really been around a community of physicians and a lot of them, these were like motivated, really interesting people. And it was the first time I got to know them as people. And uh, that got me inspired to be interested in it. So you mentioned that there were a few situations where it kind of uh, informed you that you're good at this, you know, as far as like kind of the wilderness medicine. Do you have any examples of that? Um. <laughs> I mean, you know, not good at it like as excellent clinician or anything, but I, it was just calm and we could trouble through, troubleshoot through stuff. In the wilderness, there, a guy named Paul Peltzot was one of the people that started National Outdoor Leadership School. And one of his sayings that we were always taught, I have no idea if he ever really said it, was uh, when something bad happens, just sit down and have a cigarette. You know, don't, don't just react. Don't just do something. Stand there. You know, like. People can sometimes get super excited. I mean, there's times where you need to respond kind of quickly. But um, in general, in the wilderness, like in the backcountry, nothing's going to happen fast and nobody's going to come save you fast. So you better be able to just sort of think through this and do this well. And uh, I mean, I think of a case where we had a, we were on a caving course and the students started getting bad belly pain. And eventually we got her into town and it was appendicitis and we sorted it out, you know, um, we had, I had a bad rockfall incident that was um, definitely on us as instructors. We hadn't adequately cleaned this backcountry climbing site. And a, I was belaying a student 
or helping belay a student when the student who was climbing ripped off a huge piece of rock and it came down and slammed the student belayer and I was behind backup belaying in the hip and um and it, instead of you know freaking out and calling for a helicopter right away we just did a good assessment and we were able to actually he had a huge contusion to his hip but nothing was broken and we were able to walk this guy out you know, for two days to get him out, not using other resources and just handle the situation. Um, and we, I had some heli evacs too for a couple of head injuries that ended up okay. Um, and then really the, the time that made me f realize this is probably what I should do is I rolled up on a car accident and I was already having these conversations with a friend who was family med doctor in Fairbanks. And I rolled up on a, a pretty sad car accident um, between Delta and Fairbanks and the driver... Uh, it was a head-on, and uh, the driver who'd crossed the road, I think he'd probably had like a medical emergency or something across the road. It wasn't like a drunk driver kind of thing or anything. Um, but I, f I learned a little bit about him later because a friend had actually been his doctor. And uh, I think, you know, maybe he had a seizure or something. And he'd crossed the middle line and, and head-on. Fortunately, the people in the car he hit were fine. They were Fairbanks folks coming back from backcountry skiing. And, uh, but this kid was clearly super head injured and he was posturing and bleeding out of the nose and throwing up and and what does that mean posturing oh sorry it means uh so your it just means that your brain the part of your brain that controls your muscle tone and and how you control your muscles has been injured and he essentially was like his arms and hands were turned inward and his legs were kind of turned inward and they people assume this posture that indicates a really significant head injury. And that's that's what was going on with him. And me, or a nurse who happened by and, and, and I were first on scene and in the car and holding his head and talking to him and, and he was breathing and we were just there handling it until the EMTs got there and until a helicopter came in and pulled him out. And, and it was like, we were okay dealing with that. And what was the kind of an immediate thought that you had after that like, were you were you like I that was pretty good I was pretty good at that you know it you know no it was more in retrospect later like I'm I'm comfortable in these situations like I can be there and it doesn't freak me out and um you know maybe that that's something I can pursue I like dealing with it when I do when I am the provider at the level that I know how to do and I should I should check this out so with the opposite of wilderness medicine we've been talking about yeah would the opposite of that be urban medicine? You know, it's not really, it's not an opposite. You just have more resources, right? And so, um, wow, I've never seen that. I see them as complementary. Okay. <laughs> you know, you're just extending, when you get into the wilderness, you're just extending these skills into a situation where you have less resources. And you, and in some, at some level, you control the resources that you have. I mean, in town, we also control the resources that we have, but, um, uh, you are handling situations with the resources that you have. And here we just have a lot of them. Okay. I, I think that uh, what I was thinking of, I'm thinking about it incorrectly. Um, I was thinking about wilderness medicine as the types of injuries or ailments that happen kind of away from a hospital oh, okay. um, rather than right. the types of things that happen within a city. Um. I mean, there are some things that are definitely wildernessy, you know, like Giardia. Yeah. <laughs> don't get that in town that much. But uh, I don't know, man. We live in a city where we're in that interface all the time. 
right? We see climbing falls. We see bear maulings. We see, you know, I have a friend who's a forever guide who got mauled by a bear right outside his house in Eagle River on a walk. What's right? a forever guide? Um, I, he's been guiding. Well, I met him on Denali. Uh, when so he's I was, just been doing it forever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's what he's done. That's awesome. Well, he's an outdoor educator more now. He's more of an educator. Um, and he's an amazing educator, Blaine Smith. But um, he and his wife are both amazing outdoor, but will, both wilderness medicine. That's what his wife focuses on. And uh, um, Deba Django. And she's an amazing wilderness medicine educator and actually taught one of my woofers when I first came to town. And Blaine is an amazing outdoor educator and has taught Avalanche Institute and lots of APU stuff and the old UAA program, and um, but also guided at a high level. He was a Denali guide for a long time. And I met him when I was on a private trip when I first came to Alaska. And he was up there guiding, and um, now he's still a friend. But he, you know, he got hurt by a bear right outside his house. And we know we've had lots of bear maulings <clears throat> right in town. So our, our urban wilderness split it doesn't really exist in Alaska. It's just that it takes longer for the patient to get to us. Yeah, that seems like something specific to to Anchorage where you have, say, the bear mauling, right? Right. But then you have, say, a gunshot victim from, from kind of like a, the inner city here in Anchorage. Those two could happen in the same day. That can happen in the same day. Yeah, and we do. I mean, Alaska is a violent state. Right. Like, I mean, that's that's not just in the big cities. That's everywhere in Alaska. And uh, our issues with violence and our numbers with violence are high. But that's not just urban here. And that's not just urban anywhere. You know, I think that's interesting that you you call it a a violent state, which I agree with uh, on 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 a number of different levels. You know, you could be out in the wilderness and it's also violent. You know, it's it's uh, you're dealing with the animals in the wilderness. But then here in town, like I mentioned, you could have a gunshot wound. One thing that I was thinking about as I was writing these questions down for you is I'm not sure if I know exactly the reality of what a gunshot wound looks like or a gun, like a, you know, what a real one looks like. What does a bullet do to a body? Um, yeah, it's uh, it can do an incredible range of things, right? So the gunshot wounds that we see range from. Um, in, <laughs> you always wonder who <clears throat> who taught folks gun safety, um, and often it's people who are well versed in gun safety. But a lot of people apparently clean their guns with a with a loaded weapon. Uh, so we have a fair number of gunshots through the hand of a loaded handgun, often in very well-trained people. Um, I grew up in a house where my dad taught me to never store a gun loaded. And, and, the, and same. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. I thought that was normal. Apparently it's not. And, uh, sorry, I say that sarcastically. I think for <laughs> most people it probably is, but, um, you know, the people that are very interested in self-defense seem to feel like they need to be able to just reach for something, which I think is incredibly dangerous. Um, anyway, the, they also seem to clean their guns loaded and forget. And so there's, you know, one thing is the the gunshot through the hand. That's kind of the low end spectrum. Um, but those, you see people with life altering hand injuries from that, like fairly often, right? Because it's going to take out a 
fair bit of bone and tissue when it goes through, depending on the caliber. And so the the caliber and the speed of the bullet matters a lot. Like anyone who's hunted can tell you that, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and if, did you grow up hunting? Some? Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so you've seen gunshot wounds and it's the same in people that usually the outside of the body doesn't look that bad. You know, sometimes a through and through wound um, the entry usually is less dramatic than the exit because all of that injury, that that energy becomes a shockwave through the body. And so the exit is more, you see the explosion out. So exit wounds look more dramatic. We get a lot of through and through, fortunately, and like say the thigh where it causes some tissue damage and no, you know, hopefully it misses some big vessels. But you worry about the, the gunshot wounds to the leg, you worry about somebody hitting a big vessel that knocks out the blood flow to their lower leg. And so you go from something that could just be a tissue injury to something that's a life-altering injury because now somebody doesn't have a blood vessel that, that gives flow to the lower leg. And then anything to the torso is a huge deal. You drop somebody's, you go through a lung and then that lung lets all the air out. And now you have um, one lung that's dropped and somebody's building up, they have a, they're building up pressure in one side of the chest and that starts to crush the other side of the chest. So that one working lung is no longer working and they're probably bleeding and uh, those are those are the big traumas that come in. Someone with what we call a pneumothorax, which is a lung that popped, and a tension pneumothorax where that's building up pressure and making it impossible for the heart to fill or the other lung to fill with oxygen and keep them alive. And those are the types of those are the traumas that if they get to the hospital or or even the paramedics get to them, mm -hmm. things need to happen quickly. Decompressing the chest, getting the air out of one side, putting in a you know by the paramedics putting a chest tube on one side, the dramatic stuff you see in ER, where occasionally we even like open up the chest in the emergency room because somebody has lost pulses. Like and that would be a chest crack, right? Yeah, cracking the chest. And so yeah. that's the big dramatic procedure that rarely ends up bringing somebody back. But um, if somebody loses their pulse from a penetrating trauma, and, and a gunshot wound's just penetrating trauma with high energy, then we will sometimes, sometimes, depending on how, you know, whether it hap basically happens in the ER, open up their chest and try to see, is there blood around the heart that we can evacuate? Is there a hole in the heart we can essentially put our finger in until a CT surgeon can close it or a surgeon, trauma surgeon can close it? Is there, um, can we cross clamp the aorta? I mean, these are mostly exercises we go through and mm -hmm. something we don't do very often, but I've cracked a chest a couple times and, uh, but the survival rate on that is less than 5%. Really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, these are people with massive, you know, typically life-ending injuries, and you're doing the last thing that you can possibly do. And every once in a while, it's successful. In those cases where it's successful, are you like, wow, that was a miracle, or I did my job well, or maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought it was? Uh, have I ever seen someone... I've seen someone get to the OR. I've never seen someone live from a thoracotomy. I know that we've had some successful ones. You're kind of gone through an algorithm. You know, trauma care is very algorithmic. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not actually, it's something that the public is more interested in about emergency medicine. Like the medical part that we have to think about and figure out, that's actually for us, most ER doctors, that's actually the more interesting part. Um, but those intense trauma cases, you're going through an algorithm that you've trained on 
and the nurses are too, and you're working as a team with a trauma surgeon, which we have a pretty highly evolved trauma program here, which is pretty awesome. And you're working with a trauma surgeon and sometimes anesthesia and a team of nurses, and you're just going through an algorithm to try to keep this patient alive and figure it out. You know, you, you mentioned that these are the types of cases that are interesting to the public. What, what types of cases are interesting to you as a doctor? I mean, and I don't mean to say like the, the intense traumas where you're like, everyone's working hard to keep somebody alive and it's work. It's really sad when it doesn't work because um, it's easy to have these, this predisposed notion of who's going to come in as a gunshot wound. And it's rarely, that's not the case most of the time. Right. And uh, in what way you like the stereotypical, there's the, you know, the stereotypical, um, you know, these people are involved in something that led to this and it's sort of their fault. We like to blame both the perpetrators and the victims. Kind of like we, we like to blame the victim in our you know, it just helps explain things. That's human. And often people are involved in somewhat wicked things when things happen, but um, you know, a lot of gunshot wounds are just domestic violence or family disputes or mm-hmm. um or someone who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and people that were doing bad things started shooting guns and someone just got shot and they were minding their own business, you know, and anchored to have had what the kid in the bedroom who got shot, yeah. right? So like, um, straight. There was somebody sitting at a, on a sofa as well, right? And they're just watching a, a television show, and then a bullet comes through and hits them, right? I mean, and so, and and also, yeah, you got young people that sometimes are involved, and older people involved in risky behavior, but but they're still they have a, f- a whole life that we're not aware of, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and so one thing in the ER is that you have to take your predisposed notion of what happened to this person before, because often they'll be, there's, they come in with a report, you know, that when, when a patient, or sorry, I'm going off on a different tangent, but when a patient arrives in the ER, the paramedics are giving you a report and sometimes the police are arriving at the same time. And so you have a story and you have to focus on the mechanism and what the injuries that were noted by the paramedics and what the paramedics did and you have to ignore the social aspects to the story unless they pertain to the medicine. Because the minute you start to focus on, you know, some story of, yeah, well, maybe this person was bad too, mm-hmm. and you let that enter into your care, you, you're, you're potentially completely screwing it up. Like yeah. That's right. So you can't have preconceived notions about who this patient is and how this happened because that could affect your care and that can never affect your care. So, and, and the crazy thing is that, you know, a huge percentage of the time that story we hear isn't true. So you just have to get that out of your head and never let it affect your care because it does affect trauma care sometimes. You know, that's interesting to me that, um, the reality of a situation versus the perception of it. Right. Right. And so you're talking about the people that come in from a gunshot wound, not fitting this like narrative that say civilians like myself or somebody else reading the newspaper like oh yeah it's it's a bad guy versus another bad guy you know right. and, and and no harm done what would you like people to know as a as somebody who sees the reality of these situations maybe to not make these preconceived notions uh i mean well one thing is mostly you know those bad guys have lives too and they have family and friends who know them in a different way and uh but i think the most elegant description of it is um i heard it the the pittsburgh shooter um 
there was an interview with the doctor that, or no, I think it was the chief medical officer or the CEO of the hospital uh, who took care, that took care of him, talking about going into the room and visiting this patient and him expressing to, you know, the Pittsburgh shooter that we're here to take care of you and that's our job. And that's all our job is. And you are a patient like any other patient. And uh, that's what our job is. And so we can't let any narrative get in the way of the care that we give. And we're human. And so, you know, whether it's medical or trauma, people have preconceived notions that creep into stuff. But that's what the job of the medical system is, is to take care of patients and not worry about how it happened. And then if we can, our job is to help address the social aspects of that after the care has happened. And, you know, I think it is our responsibility to address social aspects of care, but that's, that's not what you do when you're addressing the immediate medical or trauma need. And that comes down to kind of over and above your medical duties, right? That you become like a social worker at that point. Oh yeah. Social work is huge in the ER. I mean, we're where people go when they have nowhere else to go. Right. So we're watching people sober and we're watching people, uh, we're, you know, families show up and they're like, we have, we can't take care of our grandma anymore. And we decided today and we're here. Hi. Just to like, dump grandma off. Essentially. And we, you know, we have, we don't have magic access to a nursing home or assisted living facility. Like those things don't happen immediately, but people don't know that. Right. And so they're often, there's not some new acute thing, but they've just can't do it anymore. And it's an emergency today. And so like the social work in the ER, and often we're quite disappointing to people. Like we, yeah, we can point you in a direction and this is gonna be a process that you need to go through. The social aspect of, of drug and alcohol recovery. Like we, we don't have the facilities to help people withdraw in a controlled setting. That's not the ER. Not that withdrawal isn't a big deal and hard on people, but unless they're at a level where without hospital care, they might die, which is really only true in general for alcohol withdrawal that's extremely severe. We, we can't do, we help people be a little more comfortable and then we point them towards the resources which are sorely lacking in this city and in this state. And then they, it's kind of up to them to figure it out. So we disappoint people a lot. <laughs> <laughs> because they're, they're going to you for things that you shouldn't have to provide anyway, though. I don't know if we shouldn't because it doesn't exist. Like, right? I mean, in an ideal world, yeah, there should be this easy entry into alcohol and drug rehab. Absolutely. In a country with an insane opiate crisis, mm -hmm. and a lot of people <laughs> like to drink a lot, we should have those resources and we don't. We don't have it. And, and at, at some often these people are sick enough, they need to come to the ER for us to rehydrate them and get them on medications that make them a little more comfortable. But uh, yeah, I don't have magic access for their full recovery. And that is incredibly frustrating to families and patients because they see it as an emergency. They need to be done with this now. And, you know, it it, in some ways it is. And we don't, as a society, have a way to deal. You know, I um, I have another podcast that, will have premiered after or before this episode comes out uh, called Lost Anchorage, where I look at the uh, mechanisms and causation of crime here in Anchorage. And I've interviewed a criminologist, a um, a number of other people. But one thing that, that all of them have pointed to 
is alcohol and what an issue Alaska uh, has with alcohol. I mean, what is your experience with alcohol as an ER doc? Uh, alcohol is ever present as an ER doc. I mean, it's just always there. Um, there's people coming in withdrawal. A lot of trauma is alcohol related, whether it's the drunk driver or the fight on the street or the fight outside a bar or a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, um, gun violence is alcohol fueled um, or family disputes or domestic violence. And then there's like the sad alcohol stuff where people come in when their liver's given up and they are like completely end stage cirrhosis, their belly's filling up with fluid, they're yellow, and they either have a really bad acute alcoholic hepatitis that they might recover from, or they have essentially killed their liver and they now are facing a life where if they don't quit alcohol and they don't get a liver transplant, they don't have long for this world. And sometimes, you know, again, like that's somebody's family, you know, whether whether or not they were the functional alcoholic that still lived in the community or they're the homeless person that it finally didn't work out for, um, they're now, you're looking at somebody who's essentially a ghost, like without a liver transplant, they're not going to be long for this world. So that, and then the, the functional alcoholics or the dysfunctional alcoholics, you know, they're showing up with a fall or an injury or, um, uh, pancreatitis or diverticulitis. Not, not that these things are always alcohol related. I don't want people to get it, get, take that idea that I'm blaming anyone for their pancreatitis or diverticulitis. But, you know, there are tons of other medical conditions that are fueled by alcohol as well. Um, high blood pressure. Uh, yeah. And so it is, it is ever present in our world. And there's probably something we should do about it, huh? <laughs> as a city, yeah. as a state. <laughs> yeah. I don't really know what that is because it's such I a culturally accepted. I mean, I, I like to have a beer and, mm -hmm. um, to some degree, it's that marijuana is not as dangerous in the big scale, but, you know, and that we don't have this end game like we do with alcohol, but it does intoxicate people and it's not always the right thing to do. And it, um, and when people are chronically using it, we see uh, sequelae of marijuana as well. Like there's a cyclic vomiting syndrome that a lot of people end up in. And a lot of people are just plain self-medicating just like they would with alcohol. Like it's not always benign. Um, what was that thing you just mentioned? A lot of people end up in a um, an alcohol, sorry, a marijuana-induced um, vomiting syndrome. Like it's always been seen as this is how you calm down nausea, but that's only really true in uh, in probably in cancer patients, to be honest. And and I don't know how well studied that is, unfortunately, because our government's always shut off funding for studying marijuana. You know, we don't have great studies on it. But yeah, there's marijuana hyperemesis syndrome, and we see a ton of it. People that come in with this these cycles of vomiting and uh, abdominal pain and it's just because they smoke weed every day yeah marijuana is not totally benign but it's i mean that discussion of what's legal and what's not legal and how do you encourage people to use it responsibly and how do you allow that and not have the bad side of it happening i i don't know the answer to those questions because i like being able to make decisions myself about what's right for me but when alcohol gets a hold of somebody, it's, I mean, anyone who's had an alcoholic in their family or anyone who's been around an alcoholic or anyone who's mm -hmm. been alcoholic, I mean, they know that, that is, that's an incredibly powerful force. Mm -hmm. So there was a spice epidemic here oh, yeah. a while back. What was it like dealing with that as an ER doctor? 
it was kind of wild because you didn't really know what these people were taking. Um, and that was impacting the city, not just as ER doctors, but emergency medicine as a whole, because the paramedics were getting run into the ground. Um, AFD's number of, of visit of, uh, runs was spiking huge. And we were having like these, what do you mean by runs? Uh, when they go out to see a patient. Oh, okay. Like a physical, cause there's, uh, yeah. There's so like a, a run, like, so like they get in the ambulance and they, you call 911 and they start up and drive out to see you. Okay. Right. Okay. Or somebody calls 911. So we were, and there were like these, I don't mean to sound like I'm making light of it, but there were like spice mass casualty incidents where like people would be passing it around and they would just drop one by one. And all of a sudden you've got like 10 people down from whatever they took. I mean, in some ways it was interesting from a toxicology standpoint, we never had any idea what it was and it was getting sent to the state and it was going to labs and CDC was looking into it. And every once in a while we'd get this report of this is some new cannabinoid that's being synthesized somewhere. And, you know, we, we always like to blame China. Actually, China does everything. <laughs> it's China. They're making it in labs in China. Um, and uh, and yeah, as these cannabinoids were becoming illegal, the chemists were changing it and it was, yeah. And so we never really had any idea what people were taking and people didn't have any idea what they were taking. And sometimes it was really powerful stuff causing seizures and respiratory depression, like people to stop breathing. And there were fatalities from it. And there were people coming in super sick. Usually they would just be altered and agitated and we'd be able to calm them with benzodiazepines, things like the equivalent of Xanax or um, Ativan or Klonopin, but stuff that we use in the ER that's in that same class. And uh, we'd be able to calm them down and usually sober them up. But some of us was long acting stuff and they'd end up either admitted or in the ICU. I mean, it was crazy. And it was crazy when all of a sudden you have like three, four patients showing up to each hospital completely intoxicated on something that we have no idea what it is. And then you, like I mentioned algorithms before, you drop into this toxicology algorithm of how do you treat an incredibly agitated or altered patient mm -hmm. and keep them alive in a safe way and not complicate things where they've taken something that's affecting their system in one way and it looks like a certain type of toxidrome. Um, and so how do you treat that? And we're dropping into those algorithms without knowing what these people have taken. From my perspective, just reading about it in the news and, and hearing about it, it kind of seemed like PCP. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't around back then when PCP was like the hotness, you know, when you'd hear about like these people hulking out because, you know, they're on PCP and they'd be shot like 20 times or, you know, you know you've heard the, yeah, uh, the stories, but that's kind of what it seemed like. Right. Spice was a little like. I am that old, actually. So I heard <laughs> those stories. <laughs> Did it kind of like uh, bring you back to that time or? Well, I wasn't, like, yeah, no, I wasn't quite that involved. But yeah, I heard those stories. Um, but. Uh, and by that I meant just, yeah. I mean, not saying that you were on PCB. <laughs> no, I meant hearing the stories. Not one of those teenage rebellion things I did. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, here, yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember hearing firsthand from a guy who, uh, he worked at a video shop that I went to and he told me about, um, he was, my, my dad got me tickets to a Rolling Stones concert in like 1981, no, 83. That's awesome. And uh, I was 13 and so I couldn't go by myself and this local video shop guy, my dad trusted and told, and asked him if he'd chaperone me and he was super into music. He was actually a musician and so he did. And I remember him telling me about, he was sober 
and he was kind of the first person I'd, you know, as a kid, I'd never heard those stories of like someone who'd been into drugs and alcohol and needed to stop. And he told me those stories and uh, he quit after he had been at a party. He was smoking PCP. He reached into a fire, grabbed a burning log and was carrying, carrying it over his head, like being Superman. And um, after he recovered from the hand burns, he realized he probably shouldn't do those things anymore. Um, but yeah, totally. I mean, there's stories from ERs of somebody, you know, the gurney, the beds we have in an ER. There's, okay, yeah. there's a, I don't know how true this is, but there's a story floating out there of somebody who literally was strapped to a bed, not sedated enough at this point, who stood up and walked down the hall with a bed strapped to their back. Holy crap. And this right. is on Spice? That was a Spice story. Okay. Yeah. I, I assume that was probably a smaller gurney, like an EMS gurney, right? Like a paramedic gurney, but even still, like yeah. crazy stuff. And so the first thing that you do when you see someone who's in an agitated delirium, that's what we call that, when people are just super agitated and superhuman, um, because they can destroy themselves with that. Like their mind-body disconnection and their their muscle excitement and brain excitement is to a level where they can start breaking down their their muscles and and also in things like methamphetamine can start breaking down their heart like these people can have their heart doesn't explode or blow up but they can have heart rhythms that kill them like we've literally had people roll in the door going from smoking meth to a vtac arrest and they die wow. um but what you do is you're all everything you're doing is focused on just bringing them down and so that's and, and when you don't know what it is, you're you're purely using medications called benzodiazepines, and just calming everything down. Yeah. How was the the whole spice epidemic? How is that different or similar to dealing with the whole opioid crisis? Opioid crisis. Right. So spice, the opioid crisis fallout is much broader. You know, spice is a little bit like a trauma. You know, it's an acute intoxication. It's not, it was cheap. So uh, it was easy for people to get into. It was definitely being used by the most by segments of the population that could get it easily. So um, it was teenagers and it was a, a lot of the homeless scene for the most part, like people who didn't have a lot of resources who are getting into a drug easily. <clears throat> but it was a, an acute episode and it was there and gone. Um, and then it kind of fell out of favor. The opiate epidemic is more like alcohol. Like it is everywhere. It is an incredible addiction. Like the most desperate people in the world that I see are the full-on alcohol addicted and the full-on opiate addicted. Like they live a super hard life and they are doing things that nobody in their right mind would ever imagine to fuel their addiction. And at some level, the opiate addiction is like the craziest. And like alcohol, it's affecting, you know, the cat, you can't, you can't really casually use opiates very easily. But, and then the other side to it too, is that it's also being fueled by a medical system that decided that treating pain is a super high priority and this is the way we're going to do it. Um, and so, you know, the chronic, the patients in chronic pain treatment, they are dependent on opiates and they are suffering the consequences from being dependent on opiates and they're not using needles and they're not getting infections, but they have a shorter life expectancy and they have a higher risk for pneumonia and um, other complications. And uh, it's not benign. Long term, it's not benign. Either being used medically and 
questionably, I don't believe appropriately, but that's for other people to answer or recreationally. It seems like, not really seems like, I think it is, the opioid crisis is pervasive. So it's not just the uh, drug-addled person on, you know, Fourth Avenue, you know, in a, in a corner or whatever, kind of like detoxing. It's, it's also like the soccer mom. It's also, you know, the hockey dad. It's also, you know, it's these people that are our next door neighbors. Oh, it's everybody. Yeah, it's, uh, it's everybody. It's, it's prescriptions. And to be honest, the, the people with resources are the ones who are able to keep it in the medical field and not end up going, not always. You know, you're seeing people reaching out to um, illegal sources, whether it's pills or IV drugs uh, from all backgrounds. But, you know, like anything, if you have resources, it's easier to find the resources. So it's easier to stay within the medical system if you have those resources. But it's everywhere. And it's affecting families across the entire spectrum of the city, which is why, you know, you have like I, my first recognition of that was in Albuquerque as a resident because I wasn't in a scene where that ever had really affected. I think the outdoor scene, not that there aren't people that get addicted in that world, but it's a world where like people have injuries and end up addicted to opiates but that's kind of the that's a that's a smaller percentage i think i think athletes in general and it's not there are many sad stories of athletes but i think athletes kind of grow up with this idea that pain is a part of what i do and they're not always seeking to get rid of it completely um but then sometimes after a bad injury end up in the same cycle as anyone else with opiate addiction but i i wasn't in a scene where i had seen that much and um and also like the evolution of it was happening simultaneously as well but i remember walking into a room after a heroin overdose and you know i mean this is a little lame like but i definitely came from my world it was a pretty easy world of people that enjoyed outdoor stuff and had resources and did stuff and so i don't mean this to sound wrong but you know i walk into a room and i had just declared a kid dead who was 19 from overdosing on heroin and and I was 40 then because I was you know went to school med school late and the mom was in a Patagonia jacket and looked like any one of my friends you know and she was she'd had her kids a little younger and was probably 45 and you walk in and you see someone who looks like you and you're like yeah this is everywhere mm -hmm. you know and everyone needs that experience to realize how pervasive it is i think yeah and, yeah, and so you never know who you're going to walk into when you, you you're telling somebody's heroin overdose fatality their family they're dead like it could be anyone yeah you want to know one of the craziest things of emergency medicine that people don't think about actually yeah, like one of the things that like is the wild thing that we deal with you know, <laughs> well you know regan regan is a mutual friend of ours but like she uh she's married to one an er doc right and re, i think it drives regan crazy when we explain when we talk about the things that are like you know kind of hard on us um because really we're not the patients we're the people that are there for work but one thing that's really wild and you get really good at is so you walk from having these intense family discussions when somebody dies or they're super sick or it's life-altering and then you go to the next room and it could be anything it could be somebody with a cold you know, and you just like, and you have to completely reset. And it's same for the, everyone involved. You know, your brother is a tech, the nurses, you know, you just did something super intense that was life altering. 
and and had to explain it to a family. And then you walk into a room where someone's having an emergency at their level that is a completely different level. And you have to like be completely reset and not that other room can't even enter your brain. It's really wild. It's a wild, it's a skill. It's like a form of shock almost, but it's like, I mean, culture shock almost, you know, where you're, you're, you're dealing with something that, like you said, it's yeah. their kind of form of an emergency. And yeah. then you go to another person's version of an emergency and maybe they're not equal, but I mean, one's going to be more traumatic, like objectively than the right. other one. Yeah. And it doesn't matter that they're not equal, right? That whole spectrum is going to come in through the ER at a fairly high frequency. And that is a part of doing emergency medicine is being able to completely reset for that next patient and not, not be frustrated that they're there and they're not that sick. Like just be nice to them and, and help them through that visit. Okay. So I know you got to get to your meeting. Yes. Sir. Um, no, no, don't be <laughs> sorry. This has been great. Um, we've talked a lot about trauma and these like really difficult situations at, at the ER. And so I thought maybe we'd end this on, on a happier note. As a doctor at the Providence ER, what is your idea of a perfect day? <laughs> That's interesting. A perfect day is, so I like, and I don't wish illness on anyone. I like dealing with people that are pretty sick because it's interesting. Like that's the medicine we train for. So um, fairly high acuity, like sick patients. Of course, it's always easier if it's something we can figure out. Um, <laughs> but, um, but sick patients that I have to think about, but you still have good patient flow, like you're seeing, you're moving people through the ER so that the waiting room's not building up and patient flow is a part of our focus, like moving people through in an appropriate way and working well as a team with the, I mean, I like te the team approach of the ER. It's a very more egalitarian place than a lot of medicine. It's obviously not truly egalitarian, but it's, uh, it's more egalitarian. And I have those relationships with the nurses and techs and everyone else that I work with, um, which I really enjoy. Um, things are going well with the consultants. Like you have a clear problem that this consultant, I need a consultant. So like a specialist for, and I'm able to give them the information they need. They're able to take care of what I need that, them to take care of. And we have a day that's interesting in that way with interesting medicine, things flow well and uh all the patients get better and there's like unicorns and rainbows and it's awesome yeah, that's <laughs> like a <laughs> no but that's like that's like a good flow day and and uh that's when you're sort of as a er doc you're in your zone or at least for me um and it's it's rarely that perfect like things are often hard to figure out and people are coming in for chronic problems and you know we don't necessarily agree that it's it's an emergency but you're just you know you're trying to sort that out and get them in the right direction but that's a perfect day is where it's high acuity the flow is good the teamwork is good the patients are getting the care they need on the timeline that they need it and uh and you're working well with other people that's a really good day in the ER That's great So this <laughs> this has been awesome Andy thank you is there anything else you'd like to add you know, it's kind of, it's interesting as a doctor, it, um, it's one of those jobs that becomes your identity to a degree. And, uh, for me, it's a part of my life, but it's an interesting part of my life. And so it's, a, I don't know, it's cool to get to talk about it, but it's, 
yeah, I don't think I knew the ways that my life would change when I decided to take that road. And it, it's been an interesting one. People always ask, like, would you do that again? And you just can't look back. Who knows? I always think that's kind of a complicated question, too, right? because at least in my experience, I would hope that if I were to look at, you know, me in the past and then me in the future, I inevitably wish that I could have gotten to where I am now faster. <laughs> but yeah, you right? but you couldn't do that without all of the experiences in between. Yeah, right. Like I had the other thing is that the other people in your life as a doctor are like crazy important. You know, I mean, so I went to med school late. We had kids and the impact on my my wife is incredible. You know, like she left the life that she had so that I could go to med school and then we had kids and then the the demands on me were insane and during med school which meant the demands on her were insane during med school like people don't do this stuff alone and so the 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 impact of that intensity is com completely shared by mm -hmm. a spouse and kids and stuff and so yeah and so you don't know that going into it right and you, but so exactly the same thing like yeah i wish i did it when i was 21 but no i don't like all the things, those things you do when you got to that stage, when you decided to take that next step, those are all magical experiences. And you had no idea back then. I had no idea back then. Yeah. And you can't predict the future either, right? So you can't predict the future and you can't redo the past. So you might as I had a friend who said it to me once, and I, I wish I could live my life this way 100%, and I think it would be the best way to live it. And uh, But it's kind of how I feel when people ask me, like, would you do it again? But um, it was a guy I worked for when I was doing logistics in a, for outdoor education kind of thing in the Tetons. And um, when we would go skiing and at work, he would just look at me and say, no excuses, no regrets. And I think that's the way to live your life. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 